We're going to be in Colossians once again. We're going to try to end on time today. A shortened sermon. Not much text. So turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to try to finish the first chapter here. This is our fourth lesson into the book of Colossians. So Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 21, excuse me, 24 to 29. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. The title of this lesson is going to be Suffering Begets Maturity. We're going to talk about Christ's suffering. We're going to talk about our suffering. And I think this kind of ties in really well with communion. It didn't really plan that way. It just kind of worked out that way. But I think it's going to really tie in with what we just remembered about Christ's suffering. Have you guys ever suffered a problem? A first world problem. You guys know what those are? First world problems? They are problems that are only problems in our perspective here in America. Okay? I want to read for you, before I start with Colossians, several first world problems I found online, and then I'm going to close with one of my own that I realized the other day, and uh, I'll share it with you here in a second. These are first world problems I found online. Number one, my laptop is dying, but my charger is all the way upstairs. Tiny violin, right? First world problem. Number two, the grocery store ran out of my favorite flavor of chips. Anyone been there? That's brutal. Number three, I'm all out of bottled water, so I have to drink from the tap. Man, life is so hard. Number four, I don't have enough dip for my chips, but if I open up another container, I won't have enough chips for my dip. That's quite the dilemma. Number five, when my dishwasher is running, I have to turn up the volume on my TV. How will I go on? Number six, I took such a, <laughs> I took such a long shower this morning that the hot water ran out. Number seven, I had so much food on my plate, my peas kept falling off my plate. First world problem. Number eight, my laptop battery died at Starbucks this morning, and then they messed up my double frap slim latte. How do you go on? Just, just shut the day down after that. This is my personal favorite right here. <laughs> I had to turn down the brightness on my iPad because it was hurting my eyes. First world problem. Number 10, I forgot to put the cover on my pool, and now it has leaves and stuff in it. First world problem. Number 11, the pillow, <laughs> one pillow is too low, but two pillows is too high. Anyone? That's a rough problem, right? One or two, they're both bad. Number 12, I have to wake up at 4 a.m. to catch the plane for my vacation. Ouch. Number 13, the dialogue in the movie is too low, but the music and the sound effects are too loud. I actually, okay, I, I actually believe in that one. I tell that one to Janine all the time. <laughs> You know, we have kids, we're trying to get them to stay asleep, and, you know, you turn it up too loud to hear the dialogue. It's way too loud once the dialogue's over. Anyways, first world problem. Uh, number 14, I left the remote on the other side of the room. Man, that's the worst. Number 15, this is a good one. My cookie is too big, 
to dunk into my glass of milk. I hate when that happens. Number 16, I got a cut on my thumb and now it hurts to scroll on my iPad. First world problems. I'll share one quickly with my own. I caught myself saying this the other day. This is kind of where I got this. I told Janine, we have two banks, um, our bank, two of the banks in town are PNC banks. That's our bank. And they closed the one just a few weeks ago. And that was annoying to me because that was the one really close to us and really convenient to get to. And I, told, I said, Janine, I said, you know, it's really bothersome to me that they closed that one PNC bank because now the other one's on the other side of town. And not only that, but when I drive out of the PNC bank, it's hard to turn left. You know, Dad, you know what I'm talking about. It's hard to turn left out of there because you can't see the traffic. So I have to go right. And then I have to go all the way up a hill and, and come back a different way. And I caught myself saying that to Janine, and I was like, huh. Going to my bank, putting money in my bank, driving in my minivan with my air conditioner a little bit further. And I was like, oh, that's a first world problem, right? It's not really a problem. So I wanted to share that with you. I want to look at Colossians chapter 1 now, verses 24 to the end of the chapter. Because the topic of suffering comes up, real suffering. And I want us to think about this today. So the topic is, the lesson is going to be suffering begets maturity. Follow along as I read verses 24 to the end. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We're going to talk about suffering. As you know, in the book of Colossians, we've been coming from, Paul has explained his prayer to the Colossians, how he's praying for them. He first commended them for their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints, and then he tells them he's praying for something greater, that they walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then last time, last week, we looked at the preeminence the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ as a motivation to live worthy for the Lord. And now Paul is going to talk about suffering, which is another very mature part of Christianity, being willing to suffer for Christ's sake. But I want to think about his sufferings first and foremost because I think that's the springboard we need to understand here. As we just talked about with communion, Christ suffered greatly on our behalf. And, and there are movies and books that have tried to depict Christ's sufferings. I don't know if they're close. But even watching those movies is hard to do, right? It's really hard to, to take a grip of that and go, wow, he suffered so much. And even reading this account of, of Jesus' sufferings is really hard to read. He was mocked. He was scourged. He was whipped. He was spit on. And that was all before the crucifixion. And that doesn't even account for what the spiritual suffering was like for Jesus when his own father turned his back on him. 
because he was seen as the sinner. So his suffering needs to make sense of what Paul is going to talk about today. Our suffering. From the beginning of life, I believe we're all taught to avoid suffering, right? If something makes you go, ouch, don't do that again, right? Aren't we kind of trained that way from the beginning of our lives to go, if something hurts, avoid that. Therefore, following Jesus, as we see in the scripture, following Jesus brings about real suffering, real suffering. And this is the struggle I think we have here in this country where a lot of first world problems uh, impact us, is that following Jesus is painful. So a lot of us don't really want to follow Jesus because it's painful. So I think in this country, we've come up with this kind of third option where we bring the bar way down, we get rid of some of that, some of that suffering, and we still are Christians. But as we're going to look here in a minute, suffering is actually a gift from God. Not a consequence. I want you to look at your sheets there if you have them. Does everybody have a sheet this morning? Look at that verse from Hebrews chapter 5. This, this kind of blows my mind. It says, although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who blame him. Isn't that a wild thing about Jesus having to learn something? Like even as a, as a child and a young baby and stuff like that, for Jesus being in the womb for nine months, right? I mean, not thinking, not doing much, and then coming out of the womb and having to learn things. And it says here in this passage, he learned obedience through suffering so that he might be the perfect sacrifice you and I need. So his suffering was my gift and your gift. And without suffering, Jesus doesn't become obedient to the point that God asked him to. That's really wild to think about. Paul says something interesting here in verse 24. He says, now I rejoice. That's already interesting. I rejoice in my sufferings. Wow. I don't know if I could say that. As soon as I suffer, I'm like, no, that's never going to happen again. That will not happen anymore. I don't like it. It hurts. I'm not going to do it anymore. Or I just really whine and complain my way through it. Oh, it just hurts. Like we did with this past heat wave. I'm not a big fan of heat. I've told you that. So this last past week, I was trying to check myself as often as I could to not complain and whine, but I did a little bit. It's so hard. It's so hot. You know, I can't wait till it's over. And yet Paul's going, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. And the, I, the picture I get is Jesus handing the baton to Paul. Jesus isn't on earth anymore. We know that, okay? Jesus ascended back to heaven to take his rightful position at the right hand of God on his throne. But what did he do? He, he took the baton and handed it to the apostles and said, from this point on, you are going to be the leaders. You are going to take my message to the nations. And Paul was the leader of those guys. He was, the, he was the leader of the apostles, if you will. So Paul is saying, listen, I am taking what Christ suffered, and now I'm filling that up for the church's sake. So Paul was taking this baton, and he was suffering for his sake, because it leads to maturity, which we're going to learn here, but also for the church's sake. And we're going to talk about why that's so significant. But I want us to understand today that suffering for Christ is not 
a consequence. It's a gift. And I know that's a hard perspective to wrap our mind around. It's like, really? It seems like, well, like remember the book of Job when Job was suffering and his friends are like, Job, you're in sin, man. I mean, how else do we explain all this suffering? You must have done something really bad. Well, Job didn't do anything really bad. In fact, he was a righteous man. And Jesus found him worthy to suffer. So suffering, when it's for Jesus, and I want to make that very clear, this isn't general suffering, like your car breaks down, or you break a bone, or you have financial struggle. Okay, That, that is suffering because we live on a sin-cursed world. That's general suffering that everybody goes through. And it's not suffering you bring upon yourself by being a jerk, if you will. When someone brings upon their own suffering, that's not the suffering we're talking about either. The suffering we're talking about today is when you simply live for Christ and you proclaim his message and hardship comes to you because of that. And in fact, if you remember, the apostles were told often, stop it. Stop saying the name of Christ and we'll stop beating you. We'll stop imprisoning you. If you stop saying the message of Christ, the suffering will be over. But they didn't. They kept saying the message of the gospel, and they kept suffering because of that. That's the exact type of suffering we're talking about here. And that kind of suffering is a gift, because only those loved by God are called to suffer for Christ's sake. Because suffering is a part of God's plan for sanctifying us. So if you're suffering for Christ's sake, God is at work in your soul. And that should make you joy-filled. Maybe not the suffering yet, but the fact that God is working on you should make you joy-filled because he wants you in heaven. He wants you prepared for heaven. He's going to make you a worthy candidate of heaven. And suffering helps that. So that's the first thing we need to understand. Suffering for Christ is not a consequence. It's a gift. If we're chosen to suffer for Christ's sake, it is a gift of love from God. And so again, Paul is suffering for the church's sake. Why? How could his suffering bless the church? Paul is in jail for the gospel. I want you to take, we'll do our one cross-reference here. The book right before Colossians, go to Philippians chapter 1, and I want you to look at a few verses here, verses 12 to 14. Listen to what Paul says in verses uh, 12 to 14 of Philippians 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Doesn't that seem like the backwards of what should happen? Paul is in prison suffering for the gospel's sake, and you would believe people would go, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to go the way he went, because I'll, I'll end up in prison just like Paul is. But it was having the reverse impact. Paul is in prison for the gospel, and other men and women are emboldened by that, going, yes. Yes, right there. That is the way we should go. Look what this man is willing to do for Christ's sake. I, too, want to line up and do that. And so Paul's suffering here for the sake of the church. So two things. They would know more about the gospel. Suffering helps you understand the gospel better because you understand Christ's sufferings. You understand the cost. And number two, you see the way you're supposed to go. Right? When it, I talked about a couple weeks ago getting training on the job. When someone trains you how to do something, you now learn what to do. Suffering teaches us that. 
here's the way to go. And so when Paul was suffering, he was teaching the church, here it is, here's the path. Here is the path. It's a path of suffering. And I want to think about this, that all godly men in Scripture suffered for Christ's sake. All of them. Persecuted. Imprisoned. Beaten. Spoken against. Having threats against. All the godliest men you look up to suffered. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Bow down to the statue and you'll be fine. No, we won't. Then you're going to go into the furnace. Daniel, stop praying and you'll be fine. I'm not going to. Then you're going into the lion's den. Even from the Old Testament to the New Testament, everyone who was unwilling to follow the path of the world and follow Christ suffered. And so Paul was no different, and he wanted the Colossians to know they too will be no different. That if they really want to live for Christ, suffering is a must. It's a key ingredient in this. Next, being willing to suffer for Christ reveals an obedient heart. Remember Abraham? Abraham was a man who loved God. <clears throat> we saw that testimony all the way back since the beginning of his life. He was a man of God. It was clear to see that. And yet, God wanted to see how much he loved him. How much? How much do you really love me, Abraham? Give me your son. Give him to me. Sacrifice your son to me. And Abraham said, yes, I will. Okay. He brought his son up and was willing to drop the knife on his own son. And because of that, God said to him, now I know that you love me. Now I know. Because when it meant suffering, you said yes. And oftentimes when it means suffering for us, we say, no, I'm not going to. And we'll get back to that. But all the godly men we look up to suffered and were willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. And it reveals an obedient heart. It reveals to us who we really belong to. It's easy to say today, I'm, I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. I do it on my own regard. I do it on my own account. It's, it's something I, I do. But when God says, do this for me, you then have a choice. Yes or no. Yes, you love him. No, it's not proven that you love him then. And Paul was being made willing, a willing, suffering minister for the Lord to help the sake of the church. He was willing to suffer. He was glad to suffer. In fact, he uses the word, rejoice in my sufferings. Ever since I was little learning about Paul, Paul was always kind of my favorite character in scripture. But he also seemed, besides the Lord Jesus Christ, the most, the hardest to attain to, right? It was like, I don't know, I'm more like Peter than I am like Paul, because Peter's often, you know, saying things he shouldn't say and stepping out of the limb and the limb breaks and Peter's making a mess of his life. But Paul was the guy who kind of at least after his conversion, had it together. And everyone wants to be like Paul. It's like, right, that's, that's, if I could be like Paul, if I could live like Paul, if I could pray like Paul, that's going to be a godly life. Well, here's an illustration of that. When I was little, uh, I wanted to be like Mike. You guys remember that saying? Be like Mike. Who am I talking about when I say that? Michael Jordan. You guys remember that? Michael Jordan. There was this old catchphrase, be like Mike. It was a commercial. And I wanted to be like Mike. I was a f basketball fan. I was an NBA fan since I was young. And I wanted to be like Michael Jordan. So you know how I t taught myself to be like Michael Jordan? Wear his shoes. <laughs> if I wear Michael Jordan shoes, I become him. It's like it just happens. So I, I lace up those shoes. I go to the parking lot. I'm doing the fadeaways. I'm doing the things. They never went in. Um, 
And I thought, as soon as I put the shoes on, I'm Michael Jordan. But you know how Michael Jordan became like Michael Jordan? Trained, practiced, sacrificed so that he could be great. And Paul, it was the very same way. How did Paul become like this? He disciplined and he sacrificed and he gave himself to whatever it meant to be like Christ because he too knew to be like Christ, it's going to take an immense amount of work and effort and sacrifice. And he was willing to do so. And so when suffering came to Paul as it came to Christ, he embraced it and said, if that's what it's going to take to become like Christ, I'm willing and ready to do so. And we have Paul's testimony before us to encourage and inspire us. In the passage here, he says something interesting. He talks about this mystery. Paul is suffering in order to reveal this mystery. And really the mystery that he's revealing is simple. That Gentiles were always a part of God's plan. See, they didn't know that. For countless generations, nobody knew that. It was only the Israelites. The Israelites were God's people, and everyone else was outside of that. Now, do we have any here authentic Jews from the beginning? Anybody here, background Jew? Nobody. That means this entire church here is a Gentile church. Non-Jewish. And so what Paul is doing by suffering is revealing to the Jews and to the world that Gentiles are a part of God's plan. And that mystery was hidden for ages and generations until God said, now it's time to to reveal the plan, that Gentiles are my people as well. And that stunned the Jews. If you remember there in Acts, it's like, what? The Jews, or excuse me, the Gentiles can receive the Holy Spirit? I thought it was just the Israelites. Only the Jews can receive the Holy Spirit. And even Peter had to learn from, from Cornelius and his family, it's going to Gentiles as well. In fact, Paul's primary ministry was to the Gentiles. His primary ministry was to reveal the gospel to the Gentiles so they can be adopted into God's family. But you have to imagine not knowing that for countless generations. Israelites, 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 right? If you read the Old Testament, it's all about the Israelites. And then there's a change in the New Testament. It's like all the Gentiles are receiving the gospel as well. Well, did God change his plan? No, he didn't. He just revealed his plan. And Gentiles were coming to Christ in abundance. And so Gentiles are called to inherit the same rich as the Jews are, which he calls the hope of glory. You and I can receive the exact same inheritance that the Jews can, which he terms, here's the mystery, here's the riches, Christ in us is the riches of God. Christ in us, the hope of glory, which is Christ in us in us. And that's a beautiful phrase. Remember the old tabernacle? When the tabernacle was constructed, only the the holiest of holy guys could go into the tabernacle and sacrifice and put blood where they needed to. And so it was really the high priest who could go into the most sacred part of the tabernacle. But here in the New Testament, it says that the Holy Spirit is in our new temple, which is our heart. The new temple, the new tabernacle, if you will, is our heart where the Holy Spirit himself resides. Isn't that amazing? Not only can you know about God, not only can you experience God or go to church and learn about God, he resides in you. That's a wild thought. The Holy Spirit resides in every single Christian. 
And this is the mystery Paul is revealing to the world and to the Gentiles now. It's like, wow, the Gentiles. And Paul had to suffer greatly to get that message out. And everybody tried to stop Paul. Paul, shut up. Paul, shut up. Paul, shut up. He wouldn't. And Gentile after Gentile was learning the message of the gospel. And he was emboldening the church to tell the message of the gospel as well. Which leads into our next point. The message of Christ must get out. It can't just hide inside of these walls and just hope that unbelievers start coming in in droves and hearing the message of the gospel. That would be great if that happened, but the message of the gospel needs to get out. Can you imagine if you had a cure for cancer? Imagine having that, an actual cure for cancer, tested and proven. Where would you take such a thing? What would you do with such a message? Hide it? You know, write a little blog on your WordPress about it? No! You would take it to a cancer center. You would take it to the news or the media. You would blast that message out there and say, listen, we have a cure. Get it out. That's what the apostles were doing. We have the cure for sin. Get that message out. Tell it to everyone. Get it to every nation. And when they started doing that, they started suffering for that. Ungodly men hated that. Ungodly religious men hated that. But Jesus is the grandest subject of all, the best topic of conversation. He is the reason speech was invented. We must proclaim Christ at all costs because otherwise there's no hope. There's no other cure for sin, is there? None. There's no other way to get to God, is there? None. So if the message of Christ doesn't get out, people die. And as soon as we try to get the message out and we suffer and we quit because we suffer, people die. So the only way people won't die is to get the message out no matter what. He says that warnings and teachings about Jesus are vital. T training them, warning them, and teaching them are vital. You both need a warning about Christ, and you need to be taught about Christ. So let's think about it this way. We, we had a tornado recently in Wilkes-Barre, right? We have a great thing today where the media can sort of predict tornadoes and let people know there's a tornado coming. Here in our area, we don't really believe them a lot. You know, it's like, ah, tornadoes don't really come to us. It's like, whatever, you know, and then tornado comes like, ah, yikes. Um, but if, if a tornado is coming, if a bad storm is coming, it's great that you can be warned about that, right? So that you can take cover. Take cover, get underground, get your family safe. And so that's why a warning is necessary, because there's a coming storm called the wrath of God. I hate saying it that it's that way. I hate, I, that's not a great message, right? When you take it to the campuses and the world and have to talk about the wrath of God, that's the part you kind of want to avoid. But you have to warn people there is a coming wrath and it will consume you if you're caught in it. No one will survive this if you're caught out in it. So warnings about the wrath of God must be shared. But you can't just share the warning, right? That's not good news. Hey, wrath is coming. Blessings. That doesn't do anything for anybody. So you have to teach about the refuge, Christ. You have to show him and teach him and tell people about the value and worth of following Jesus. There's salvation. 
There's salvation for you. There is a coming storm. It will consume you if you're caught in it. But there's a Savior. Warnings and teachings. And typically when you warn and you teach people about Jesus Christ, you're going to suffer. You will. Your life will get harder, more painful, and more difficult. But you're carrying the message, the life-giving message to people who will die otherwise. So the, must, the message must get out. Uh, point C under this is maturity will come to all those who are willing to suffer for Christ. You will become mature when you suffer for Christ's sake. So it has this interesting like two-pronged thing. You're getting the message out to people who can be saved, but at the same time, it's maturing you. So you're growing and people are coming to the saving knowledge of Christ. So you're blessed and they're blessed. If you don't do it, neither happens. They are blessed and you aren't made mature. So you can. You can hide and protect your life and say, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to die. So I'll just go to my little church and we'll talk about it for a half hour and I'll, I'll live my life in front of the unbelievers and not ruffle any feathers. Well, then they die and you don't become mature because that's what suffering does. It matures people. We know what that's like, right? This isn't a brand new thing and I'll prove this to you. We know that suffering produces good. Anyone ever had to work for a job or to get a job or to get through school? Anyone ever? Have you ever had to work really hard, sleep less, work hard, agonize even? What about working out? As soon as you work out and it hurts, do you shut it down? Oh man, ouch. <laughs> Not doing that again. Well, some of us do. Um, but anybody who understands this concept understands this is a reality. Suffering produces good results. If I work out, admit, admits the pain, and keep going on, I will get fit. If I chase a job and school and success, even beyond the pain, I can get there. But as soon as the, I encounter the pain and I shut it down, I don't. I don't get there. And so suffering for Christ is a necessary step in order to become mature in Christ. We will not become who Christ has called us to be otherwise. We just won't. When an obstacle comes in front of me, you say, no thanks. Not going to go over that. Then you don't get there. You don't get there. It's like breakers in the waves. You guys ever go to the ocean? You guys remember those movies like Castaway and stuff like that where someone's trying to leave the shore and get out into the ocean and there's these massive breakers coming at them, you know, and sending them back to shore. Well, you kind of have to go over those. There's really no way to avoid it. Go over the breakers. That's kind of what suffering is. As soon as you get the message of, the Christ, of Christ out, you start to suffer and people start to speak ill of you. You can't stop. Keep going. It will get easier. You'll get, you'll get stronger. You'll get more used to this and the breakers will settle down a little bit. Lastly, quickly, he says here at the end, um, we, we labor with the strength that God provides. Look at verse 29. For this I toil, or labor, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So here's two things. Suffering and effort cannot be avoided in the Christian life. Cannot be. 
If you want to live for Christ, you will have to work. You will have to discipline, and you will have to suffer. But even more encouraging, victory cannot be thwarted because you're not working with your own energy. You're not working with your own strength. You're working with divine, God-given strength. So although you will suffer, you will win. You will. Because you're fighting and you're struggling with God's strength. Let me illustrate this, illustrate this once more for us. Bullies. Imagine a fourth or fifth grade bully picking on your little second grader, or yourself as a second grader, pushing you around, saying whatever he wants to you, acting like he owns you, do whatever he wants to you. And unbeknownst to him, standing right behind him is your 6'6 six, six father, standing right behind this kid, enveloping him with his shadow. And as soon as the kid turns around, he sees that. This is kind of what we're talking about here. The world's going to push you around. They're going to bully you. Satan himself will bully you. But if you're near the Lord, you're going to win. You're going to win because it's not your strength. It's his strength. Lastly, we've talked about this. I want to keep this theme going. Jesus is worthy. Do you remember his sufferings? Because that's the whole point. You will not suffer if you forget his sufferings. But if you keep his sufferings close to your mind and to your heart, you will go, then I can go forward too. I can go forward too. Because when it meant Christ's suffering, he went forward for your sake. It says in Philippians 2 that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me say that one more time. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when it meant death, Jesus went forward. When it went death on a cross, Jesus went forward. So the question about, uh, for us today is, what are we obedient to the point of? Where's the line we won't go past? Are you obedient to the point of pain? And then you, re you retreat? Are you obedient to the point of schedule conflicts? As soon as a schedule conflict comes in the way, sorry, I can't. I'm busy. Got too much to do. Are you obedient to the point of loss of relationships? The less money and less success? Are you obedient to the point of loneliness? As soon as it means I'll be lonely, I'll retreat. Or are you obedient to the point of my desires not being met? Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he paved the way for us and said, follow me. Follow me. We're going to close here, and I want to leave you with one last verse, and it's on your sheet. Listen to this from Hebrews 13. Think about his sufferings, and then think about what you can do. It says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. There's his sufferings. He suffered greatly outside the gate. Not like a king, like a criminal. In order to sanctify you with his blood. Therefore, let us go to him in the same place outside the camp. 
and bear the same reproach that he endured. Why? Because we have no lasting city here. But we seek the city that is to come. I don't want to be outside of Christ, and neither do you. I know that's true. You're here today. None of you want to be outside of Christ on the last day. There's only two options. Go to where he is or abandon him. Jesus says, who's ever not with me scatters. You're either with me where I go, outside the camp, in the camp of suffering, or you scatter. So do you want to be mature in Christ or just not have to pay for your sins? Are you okay with Christ suffering for you, but not you for him? How can each of us raise the bar and go beyond where we have been willing to go so far? Christ being the motivator. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because it will secure my people's redemption. And they're worth it. Jesus is worth it, too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son. We don't even account sometimes for the suffering that you had to endure to actually drop the knife on your own Son. But we thank you for that sacrifice that you made, and we thank you for the sacrifice that Christ made because it's our salvation. It's our hope. It's my joy. Anything that the world doesn't know that we have is a pure credit to Christ and his body and his blood. Help us to remember that to follow Christ is going to mean our all. And we don't make our own suffering. We don't determine when we suffer. You determine that. We just say yes to the Lord no matter the cost. Help us to understand how joy-filled it is to know you're on the right team and that you cannot lose and that one day Christ will receive glory because of our sufferings for him. He is worthy of it. Inspire us and encourage to go forward in that path today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.